Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, Marcus Funk, Perkins partner and co-author of the book Child Exploitation and Trafficking, Examining Global Enforcement and Supply Chain Challenges in U.S. Responses, speaks with Jeremy Gottschalk, the general counsel for SitterCity.com and founder of the education and information sharing platform Marketplace Risk, as well as U.S. District Court judge and former federal prosecutor Virginia Kendall, one of the nation's leading experts in the area of child exploitation. Topics discussed include potential threats facing companies operating in the childcare space, concrete steps companies can take to identify and root out potential abusers from their online platforms, and cooperation with law enforcement authorities. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. On today's episode of White Collar Briefly, we really have two fantastic guests. We have Jeremy Gottschalk, who, among other things, is the general counsel for Sitter City. And we have U.S. District Judge Virginia Kendall, who's our first repeat guest. So congratulations, Judge Kendall, for that honorific. But perhaps we can begin first by Jeremy introducing yourself in terms of you know, our focus today is going to be, in part, how do we avoid exploitation on childcare and related platforms? Judge Kendall has an incredibly extensive experience in fighting child exploitation, both as a prosecutor and as just a commentator and a thought leader. And so I thought it might make sense just to have, and this is Marcus Funk, I'm at Perkins Coie, and also a former colleague of Judge Kendall, although not a colleague on the bench, merely a prosecutorial colleague of hers. But maybe we could begin, Jeremy, by you introducing us a little bit to you and to the career you've had, how you came to get involved in Sitter City and transitioned into the board role, I think, in 2017. And then we can jump into the substance. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So uh, as we talked about before the recording started, I uh, did my law degree at Loyola and actually have a certificate in child and family law from the, I think it's now called the Child and Family Law Center that's run by Diane Garrity. So my goal in life was to represent abused and neglected children. That's really what I set out to do. Although the first person to go to college in my family and then graduate school a couple hundred thousand dollars in student loans precludes any you know, public interest job. That's kind of what it came down to. So I actually did well, went into a law firm and then was recruited into K&L Gates, where I focused primarily in IP technology development, worked with kind of large multinational companies on a lot of their contracting for outsourced tech development. And then over time, started developing a practice working with startups as some of our teams would represent VCs and financings and then I would kind of serve as outside GC for startups. So my career took somewhat of an unforeseen turn. Then 2010, I was recruited to come in-house to Sitter City. So for me, it was kind of a perfect marriage of my kind of personal and professional interests, largely because Sitter City was the first childcare platform in 2001. 
and had got its first round of funding in 2009. So not a ton transpired in those years in the industry in general, but come 2010 and just the amount of funding you saw, you know, Uber and Airbnb and a lot of these giant unicorns, I think, spurred on a lot of interest in marketplaces, essentially. So I came in house in 2010. My kind of primary role was to obviously start a legal team, grow the legal function, but then also really understand the risk and the exposure tied to this platform. I came in with a new CEO in 2010 who, thank goodness, saw lawyers as business partners and not profit killers. So I was involved in really every aspect of the business. So I got a real quick understanding of where the risks were. And and one of the things that I set out to do really once I got in-house was to figure out how a platform can be misused and misappropriated. And of course, when you're dealing with children, there are, I think, some obvious, but then not so obvious. So my kind of career or how I wound up at Sitter City was it took a few left and right turns. But at the end of the day, it was kind of a perfect marriage of my interests and some of my experience. Judge Kendall, I mean, in addition to you both having attended Loyola Law School, which is a great thing of commonality you have, where my my father-in-law also is an alum, I wanted to have you both introduce yourselves to those listeners who don't know your background in this area and the fact that you and I co-authored a book on the topic of child exploitation and supply chains and related issues. But before we get into some of the specifics of how these platforms operate and where the dangers are and where potential safeguards can be built in, maybe tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to get involved in the topic of exploitation of children, human trafficking, and related topics. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks for having me again. Do I get a t-shirt or something like that for being the second You get a mug. In German, you get a mug, too. That's awesome. Okay. Yes. A Yeti mug. Very exciting. A Yeti. Okay. Well, as you mentioned earlier, Marcus and I both were federal prosecutors together in the Northern District of Illinois. When I started a long time ago in the early 90s in the U.S. Attorney's Office, it was really the stepchild of prosecution to be doing any kind of federal child exploitation case. There was possession of child pornography, and many of the men prosecutors, which the office comprised predominantly, didn't want to do those cases. And so it turned out that sometime in about 1995, I was investigating and prosecuting the luring of a child over the internet, and it turned into what is now common lingo for people who watch To Catch a Predator or, or Oprah Winfrey. But it was back then, really at the early stages where people were recognizing how individuals hack into sites or how they portray themselves differently on the internet to lure individuals, how fraud and grooming and luring occur in different areas and how all of that can be tracked with the electronic evidence. And so it was really the first federal internet kidnapping case because we didn't have statutes back then that really fit what we were talking about. We certainly didn't have a human trafficking statute. We didn't have even the subsection B to 2423, which is to lure someone in interstate commerce. So we were kind of putting a round peg into a square hole or whatever they say, the square peg into the round hole. And so we were doing as best we could. 
learning and grappling with what was both the technology at the time, because it was new to most of the investigators, and also the psychology at the time, because I think it was very different for us to look at a crime as something that might happen over time and over maybe weeks and months, as opposed to simply a quick you know, violation. And these cases took a tremendous amount of manpower and devotion to bring to court. And then once you got them to court, it took a tremendous amount of educating of the jurors because these were all new areas, both the psychology, the technology, et cetera. So fast forward going on to the federal bench 15 years ago, I assumed that would go by the wayside and that would be a closed chapter in my life, but instead, I've been fortunate enough to be continuing my academic research, my writing, and my teaching in the area of human trafficking, child exploitation, and training judges and law enforcement overseas who don't have the same level of understanding that we might have here. And so that's where I've come into play, and I'm intrigued by the efforts that Jeremy has undergone to protect his system and how that actually plays out. And I'm sure it plays out by really knowing the technology inside and out. Yeah, Jeremy, picking up on that, maybe you can, just to help us level set a bit, maybe you can give us some understanding of the types of platforms that companies like Sitter City and other companies use and where the vulnerabilities are from your perspective and in your experience and then maybe walk us through you know i know you're a real thought leader on this topic specifically on these platforms talk us through a little bit of the types of things you think companies can do have done should be doing to further fortify the platforms against you know bad actors taking advantage of them Yeah, so backing up, my third year at Sitter City, as any startup goes, it's kind of a legal department, certainly is underfunded, under-resourced, and the goal with most of these platforms is growth, right? It's everybody wants to see hockey stick growth, and that's why the VCs are involved. You know, as a result, the risk management, kind of a legal strategy, I wouldn't say that it takes a backseat, but it's just not prioritized like marketing and growth and acquisition and development of technology. Now, I will say that we were very lucky. I was very lucky at Sitter City because their CEO at the time always had his ear. I was always involved in every aspect of the business. And so my job was to see around corners, obviously properly advised, but then you know I also got kind of rewarded with the ability to execute on some of these things. So in 2013, I brought together all of the players that existed at the time in the child care kind of related space. So tutors, nannies, coaching, babysitters, you name it. And we formed a coalition with the sole goal of sharing information about the risk, the legal, kind of the strategy. Obviously, we weren't talking about marketing and acquisition. It was truly what we were doing to protect children and the communities because Keep in mind as well, it can go both ways, right? Obviously, children are easier targets, but it can go both ways. And so 2013, we got this group together and we would meet quarterly and just talk about what we were doing, what we were seeing, how we were preventing it. And so to answer the first part of your question, really, if you're involved in technology or any type of a platform, especially where you have vulnerable population, whether it's somebody with disabilities, a senior, children, you name it, you really have to try and 
figure out how that platform can be misappropriated and misused. That goes with all platforms, but I think particularly with vulnerable populations many times who can't speak for themselves or defend themselves. And so that's what we set out to do was this whole group just really tried to figure out how could these platforms be misused and what were we seeing? And we, you know, we talked actual data and incidents and experiences. Really quickly, when we started this group, I started realizing that there was very little that was being done by other platforms. I think that because Sitter City had several years leg up on these other platforms, we were further ahead. And there are a couple things that I talk about when we talk about protecting anybody, but particularly children, right? There's a lot of data that you can collect and you can leverage that data kind of evaluate behavior and use it to predict and prevent certain types of bad behavior, particularly on these childcare related platforms. And so one of the things that we did immediately is we started sharing what vendors we were using, right? So on any type of platform, you've got to start with an identity. And it's pretty interesting because most people who are setting out to do bad things tend to find ways to obscure their identity, right? So if you can properly identify somebody and confirm that, you've gone a long way. Now, that's not to say that somebody whose identity is known isn't going to do something bad or misuse the platform, but that's really a first step. And then particularly in the child exploitation realm, there are several vendors out there. The first one that we started with was Family Watchdog. And we started screening the entire database, both sides, both parents and sitters, against the Family Watchdog, the sex offender at the time, and I still believe they're the most comprehensive, against their database on a daily basis. So we, were, we would get constant updates. Now, the problem with the sex offender database is it's retroactive, right? The, the crime has already occurred and there's already been that subsequent hearing, which is what ended them up on there. But at a minimum, it was a place to start. And then we started working with, and a lot of the childcare companies now do work with, a company based out of Boca Raton called the Child Rescue Coalition. And they own a database that's compiled by law enforcement agencies all over the country, and I think it's even gone global. And it's child sexual exploitation materials, but also chat rooms and peer-to-peer networks that have been infiltrated. And when these devices have been taken in as evidence, they then pull all that IP information, right? So one of the first things that we would talk about is you've got to collect IP information. You have to collect phone numbers. You have to collect this data because there are resources out there. Obviously, IP addresses are not reliable in and of themselves. But when you add that to some geolocation technology, you can kind of triangulate when somebody came, went, when they shared some CSAM or child sex exploitation material. And then if they came back to your platform, if their IP address didn't change, you knew that that was them who shared that material. And then you can combine it. And ultimately what we did was we took a bunch of known sex offenders this is after they have been removed from all these platforms. But we, we looked at their behavior and we evaluated how they interacted on different platforms. And we compared that with the normal use case. So in a babysitting context, uh, generally speaking, 90-something percent of babysitters are 18 to 24-year-old females who might be willing to travel, let's call it 20 miles for a job. They might be willing to earn down to $10, maybe somewhere between $10 and $20, depending on the market. 
There's a lot of other behaviors. And what we did was we looked at the behavior of known sex offenders, and we compared that to normal behavior on these different platforms. And we very quickly came up with kind of a psychological, I don't want to call it a profile, but we were able to determine where these behaviors were different from normal behavior. And we essentially created an algorithm technology that would serve up notifications when the behavior differed from what the normal behavior was kind of outside the norm. When you combine that with a dig into their IP information, as well as some other data points that we had, you know, we were very quickly able to learn kind of what behaviors were normal. And in our case, and in this coalition, we were able to prevent, we think, incidents from occurring largely because if you are a pedophile or you are developing an interest in child pornography, at the outset, you might jump into one of these Tor peer-to-peer sharing networks or file sharing networks, and you're not really careful. And so you might receive or send an image or have a conversation. And it's a while before you get trained how to avoid detection. So when you look at some of this behavior and you realize that some of these men, we'll call them because they almost universally are, their behavior raised suspicion, number one. And number two, it kind of predated them being able to access children, right? So they found a tutoring platform or a coaching platform where they could get access to a child. But from what we've seen, Likely, this is their first attempt at meeting a child, largely because they were so easily detected. Once these offenders start to learn how the systems work, they start with VPNs and their proxy servers, and they're very good at hiding themselves. It doesn't mean that they're not detectable. And certainly law enforcement has much better resources than this coalition or than some of these, or at least invest more resources in it. But so I'm sorry for a really long answer, but you know that's kind of how we evolved from trying to figure out what the biggest risks were to trying to figure out how to identify, predict, and prevent them. That's fascinating. And before we turn to Judge Kendall, who I know will have some questions and some thoughts on this, when you were describing the information that came into the database, we have on the one hand, you know, the identified convicted sex offenders. And on the other hand, and correct me if I misunderstood, but law enforcement also then provides essentially suspect information into the database, or is the database purely people who have convictions? So for the database that we leverage through the Child Rescue Coalition, that's all information that's been provided by law enforcement. It's not necessarily conviction information. And to be frank, I don't know that they would tell you an exact answer to that. But as far as I understand it, if somebody is arrested for child pornography, they pull up their devices and they find obviously other material, but they also find other people with whom they've shared and connected and communicated. And so the material and the amount of data grows exponentially. And as I understand it, all of that data, particularly the IP information tied to either specific conversations or material is logged into that database. That's interesting. And Judge Kendall can speak to this in part because she and I prosecuted the same case 
But it's one of, and this is more of an editorial comment, but one of the great regrets I think I have in this area in general is, as Judge Kendall will recall, Dr. Mark Watsman, chief resident at the University of Chicago Medical School, uh, pediatrics and anesthesiology expert, was one of the people that was identified as a person who had custom child pornography made in Russia. What happened is a server was seized and all of the credit card information was seized of all the different customers who paid. And for every person that was arrested, there were hundreds, if not thousands, that were never even communicated with. In other words, it both goes to show that the extent of the problem and maybe also a resource issue. But it's interesting, Jeremy, when you describe what information the Child Resource Coalition gathered, and again, they may not discuss with you or anyone exactly how and where they get their information from, but it's certainly true that for every conviction, there are probably thousands of unconvicted predators out there, and they predate at an incredible rate. I think, Judge Kendall, when we wrote our book, the studies we found were approximately 500 instances of exploitation for every individual who engages in this conduct. And it is almost a given that people will recidivate. It's very hard to sort of cause people not to have the interests that they have. But anyway, that's a bit of a longer editorial comment than I was planning on. But Judge Kendall, maybe you can reflect on both what Jeremy and his colleagues are doing and also on the issue and the challenges more generally. Oh, it's such a fascinating system you have, Jeremy. I mean, really, you are doing a bit of what I just told you we started out doing back in the 90s. You have to understand the psychology of an individual. And so this concept of knowing who's applying for a job for in childcare is this age group, this demographic, this this you know location. And then when you when you see that 40 year old coming, you know, 25, 50 miles, that's immediately a red flag. Fascinating, fascinating analysis. This issue of data is just overwhelming in this area. I always found it intriguing that when we were young prosecutors back then, that I think people thought of the cases as being kind of like the girl cases to deal with kids who were exploited. And so they were off doing cool stuff like public corruption, but my goodness, we were really hands on into the depths of technology and the data was just exponential. And not only was, did we have so much data, but we had so much encryption and hiding of data. And we had to get the cache of the computers and we had to go into all of the little rabbit holes that normal cases don't have. You know, normal cases, you get a nice search of your computer, a nice seizure of an office, a nice box of evidence. But here we were just constantly gathering information and information from an offender. When you season a sex offender's computers, the, the amount of material is astronomical. I mean, it's no longer 100 or 200 images. It's thousands and thousands of images, it's videos and the contacts in the room entries, you know, of their communication. One of the things that we talked about in the book was the validation that the sex offenders give each other online. And that's this kind of data that you're talking about with this provider down in Florida that's giving to you, you know, if you're talking and supporting each other's actions, that is the validation that gives them the courage to move to the next level. And to us, in our analysis, we thought that was one of the most detrimental aspects of technology in the area of child exploitation, is that not only is it easier to gather, but they also have the ability to really make it seem extremely normal to them, extremely 
absolutely acceptable to them, which then gives them the courage to move on to the next level. Your comment about the real offenders being able to hide themselves is so true. And the one case I don't think, Marcus, you were around for was the Charles Burt case where he was down in LaSalle County and was charged with molesting a few boys. And we put one of the boys on the witness stand, but his computers were seized. He had in his reputation online, absolutely icon status with the molester community for his images of little boys, not pornographic, but rather clothed in these little wrestling onesies, okay? And so people had him in some level of ability for this photography, and they would pay a lot of money for these images and then later pay for the jumpsuits. When we went into his house, everything was locked down. All of the computers were locked down, and the only thing we were able to find was one small old-fashioned handheld digital camera that gave us three images. And we had to go on that and continue to try to find out what was going on. But his computers had so much data that we sent them to the NSA, the security people, and the NASA, the space people, to try to break the encryption. And they ran their machines to break that encryption for months and we never broke his encryption. We broke the case because of old fashioned work like you're discussing, going into those communication lines that he had. And he had been communicating with other offenders in Milwaukee and Green Bay, Wisconsin. We went in for searches to their homes and then we found the backside of the communication. And that's how we were able to get him. But do you know that even after he was convicted, he knew the value of what was in his data because he sought and fought the forfeiture. He fought the forfeiture of the machines while he was incarcerated. And there was a subsequent forfeiture trial because he wanted to get them back. He was the only person who knew how to access that material. And he knew the value of that in the illicit market of child exploitation images and videos. I know we're using old cases to kind of encapsulate these issues for you, but you are definitely on the path of doing something that is going to absolutely protect those people that are trying to use your service because you recognize both the offender mentality, you recognize what the technology means, and then you always have to recognize, and I think you already said so, that those who are using technology are always using it in order to kind of mask themselves to be something different, to be something that they're not. And that chameleon-like behavior is what is most difficult to apprehend when you're looking at an application or when you're looking at something like that. So fascinating analysis, and I'm happy to hear that it's being done. You know, on the platforms, Jeremy, that sort of the number one threat, and this is a really basic question, but is the number one concern that a pedophile might essentially get a job through a platform and then engage in misconduct and then potentially bring obviously reputational damage as well as potentially legal risk to the platform. Again, that's not just, that's any platform involved in the childcare area. Is that the worst case scenario that the different platforms are trying to ward off against? The short answer is yes, depending on how you look at this, right? I mean, when you think about the worst crimes, take all property crimes out, right? So houses can be replaced, cars can be replaced, jewelry can be replaced. And then you think about crimes that people commit against other people. 
there is a special severity to a child that is abused in some way. And then I think that from physical abuse being one thing, and then of course sexual abuse being another thing. And then all of the different kind of machinations of that and the, the imagery and, the, and all that stuff. So I think that the short answer is yes. Obviously, you're trying to guard against many different types of incidents and you're any platform, whether it's a rideshare platform or whether it's a home sharing platform, right? There's potential, especially when you're connecting two humans together, two anonymous unknown humans, there's potential for things to go wrong accidentally and of course purposely. You know, having essentially dedicated most of my professional career in the childcare space, that happens to be, I think, the number one. And I don't want to balance this with what I've just said, but from an insurance perspective as well, it's the most catastrophic of losses, in many cases worse than death. So I think that both from a human perspective, but also reputation from really any angle you look at it, I think that's probably the biggest risk. And part of the reason why I think the industry has worked together pretty cohesively. You know, and you talked about best practices. I want to make sure that we covered all of the things that you consider best practices for individuals like yourself who are responsible for essentially protecting policing platforms like the ones we're talking about. And then also maybe you can comment on the importance of and how you go about maintaining relationships with law enforcement. So I think that there's a good segue into working with law enforcement. And in fact, what we've done is, and what we've encouraged clients that I've worked with to do is look at and develop models of normal behavior, whatever that is for your platform. And then you look for deviations from that behavior. Those deviations don't necessarily mean that that person's going to do something bad, but it gives you a trigger to look into it, right? With so many people on these platforms, it's nearly impossible to review every single profile and every single person. But if you understand what normal behavior looks like and deviations from that, it's going to give you a leg up and kind of a head start. Where this segues into law enforcement is I have always taken, so I had a very short stint in the state's attorney's office during law school, and my intersection of child protection, being a lawyer, and having also law enforcement in my family, you know, I've always come at this issue very differently than some larger platforms and their response to working with law enforcement. When we developed these models for some of these companies, what we did was I reached out to the county state's attorney and I said, I think we've got some information that could be useful for you as you're undoubtedly trying to uncover this type of behavior and prevent it on other platforms. So I ended up presenting to the ICAC task force, the Internet Crimes Against Children task force which is run by the state's attorney in Cook County, and then the other one run by the attorney general for the rest of the state. And we presented our findings to this group about essentially online predators, what we knew about their behavior, and then again, deviations from their behavior, and then essentially what we learned from it. From there, our relationship with law enforcement developed to the point that anytime we had an issue wherever it was throughout the country, we could call our local FBI office and they would connect us to somebody to investigate it somewhere else because the amount and reliability of the information that we had, they knew that information would generally lead to something or was valuable for their investigations. 
And so we've always taken the approach that when law enforcement asks for information, you know, we never required them to get a subpoena. We never put up roadblocks. And in fact, we were always completely transparent and tried to support them in whatever they were doing. As a result, we got a lot of support from them because imagine you've got a platform, you've got somebody based in you know, somewhere outside of Seattle, Washington, and you're in Chicago. Well, you can't call the Chicago police. You can call the Seattle police. Who are you going to call and how are you going to get any sort of engagement from law enforcement? But again, we took a very broad accepting approach with law enforcement and became very, and has been, and what I always recommend for all the clients I work with is, you know, really working with law enforcement at the end of the day is going to help you because inevitably you're going to need them or there's going to be an issue. And if you're putting up roadblocks to what you know they're trying to do or investigate, it's not going to be helpful. You know, one question, kind of a practical question that comes up is if I'm an applicant and I want to be, let's say, on your platform or on another platform, or let's say a sitter city, and you determine because of the patterns and the algorithms, there might be some concern about me. I'm assuming I don't have any due process rights, but I mean, is there, can I appeal the decision? Can I say, no, no, you got it wrong. I'm actually not a bad guy. I mean, how does that in practice work when you have flagged someone as at least potentially problematic? Yeah, so depending on the platform, the short answer is, is you don't have a right to necessarily be on any platform. Obviously, if you've paid for something, you have a right to whatever you've paid for. In many cases, these platforms, you know, the supply side, whether it's a driver, a babysitter, a senior care provider, a coach, you know, they're not paying to be on a, a platform. And so, you know, generally speaking, what you'll find in their customer agreement or their terms of use is this idea that you can be removed from the platform for any reason or no reason at all. The short answer is, is you know, you don't, there's no necessary due process. Obviously, as long as you are not removing somebody for an illegal reason or a protected reason, then you know, it's much like some sort of a employment at will situation, where as long as it's not for an illegal reason, then any reason will do. In the case of, let's say you're leveraging some sort of a data analytics tools and you've discovered some behavior that deviates from you know, the norm, the reality is, you know, what I always tell people is, you know, obviously you want to investigate that and you want to look and you're going to have to make a decision one way or the other. And the risk, obviously, you don't want to outweigh the benefit. When it comes to, in a child protection type case, we're always going to err on the side of caution, hands down. So if there's something that's triggered, we're not going to sit around and wait for something bad to happen. We're going to use years and years of experience to make what I would call an educated decision. Generally speaking, I think that goes for most platforms. I think some platforms do have some due process and some arbitration type provisions that will allow you to argue your way onto a platform. But you know the reality is you need to err on the side of caution versus trying to grow your customer base because the damage to your reputation if you're wrong and you leave somebody on that platform is going to far outweigh whatever benefit financial or otherwise you got from keeping that, that person on your platform.
We started this discussion today with Jeremy's comment earlier about how he had a unique situation in his company where as legal counsel, he was able to be in on the decision-making of the development and the production of his platform. And I think that that's something that we don't hear too often. We often hear instead that whatever platform is being marketed, it's all about increasing the customer base. And Jeremy ended his comments today with saying that the need for cooperating with law enforcement was so critical and not thinking about that because if you did lose in some significant way by having a predator, by having a sex offender infiltrate your system and having the ultimate criminality of that infiltration occur, the market damage, the reputational damage is astronomical. And I think when we look at this in bigger picture, it it goes right back to what Marcus and I have been writing about in our book and our different pieces that we've been putting out in corporate America, which is that this kind of forethinking, this kind of proactive thinking is the thinking that is really going to make a difference when it comes to supply chain laws and to the health of these platforms. Because as anyone can see, the instant that there was an Uber driver who has a rape occur in his car, as soon as we find out about that, it immediately puts a tremendous damper on those who want to use that platform. And so this concept of cooperating with law enforcement is best business practice, really. And I think in the past, people have looked at what Jeremy's doing as maybe a bit of minority report. He's trying to stop a crime before it happens, right? The blue ball or purple ball or whatever it is, is going down the tube and look, we caught the sex offender. But that's not really at all what he's doing. What he's doing is saying, okay, I have some significant risks in the kind of care that I'm providing through this platform and the significant risks come from what I know to be those who are going to be interested in abusing this platform. And therefore, now that I know that risk, then I got to find out how it can be accessed. Then I have to figure out how to stop it. And this is kind of the best practice for weeding that out before it happens. And as soon as I heard the program, I thought, well, I'm sure law enforcement must be knocking at his door asking him, hey, can you help us out? Not so much to do an investigation, but it certainly would support um, the evidence of an individual that they are investigating. It would certainly support the overlapping of evidence that they would need. So I'm grateful to hear that that is occurring because that's the kind of support that's going to not only be good for the society, but also good for his own business and for the business that he has to move forward. It's smart business practice. Well, I want to really genuinely thank you both. This is a very challenging, a very complicated topic that people sometimes are reluctant to speak about. So big time kudos, frankly, Jeremy, to you both for the work you've done, which is exemplary, and also for your willingness to share your candid thoughts on a topic that, again, a lot of people shy away from. And I think it's very valuable to hear from someone who truly is on the front lines like you are, and also from Judge Kendall, who has this incredible wealth of experience on this challenging area. So thank you both for joining us at White Collar Briefly. We really appreciate it. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.